Well, with the advent of artificial intelligence, uh, it's being used in, in all kinds of, of odd projects. Um, th this one is, is one I heard from the Holy Post. They, they talked about it a couple weeks ago. Uh, but but it's, it involves PETA, so People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, recently utilized AI to make a translation of the Bible that is vegan-friendly. And I, I think they only made it through Genesis, but the goal was to, you know, retell the story of Scripture uh, in alignment with their values as an organization. Uh, in essence, they wanted to remove any language of, of animal sacrifice from the text. Now, I will say this is absurd. Uh, there are so many problems with refashioning God, trying to reinterpret God through our own particular uh, image, but some of the examples that the article I read <clears throat> provides fits with some of the stories we've been looking at in Genesis. For example, Genesis 3. So after the curse, right before God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, he clothes them in animal skin. Very, very symbolic and theologically profound act. But in Peter's translation, uh, God doesn't use animal skin, but instead fashions clothes out of hemp and bamboo fibers. Uh, that, that story of Isaac that we looked at last week in Genesis 21 Abraham, this is, this is completely absurd. Abraham and Sarah desire to expand their family, so they adopt a dog named Herbie. I mean, come on. Like, it, you can't make this up. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, I, I mean, if, if we were to, uh, if I was going to come up with, you know, try to add and amplify to the text, I would probably try to pick a more culturally appropriate name than Herbie uh, of this dog. But uh, uh, anyway, they defend the decision by highlighting the importance of adoption of pets instead of buying from breeders, which they argue leads to overpopulation of animals and humane conditions, etc. Herbie. Who knew? So I guess Herbie was in the Bible. Uh, but then we get to the text that we're going to look at this morning, Genesis 22. Now, that you can turn there now if you want to, because that's what we'll look at in just a moment. <clears throat> the heading the ESV has for this chapter is titled, The Sacrifice of Isaac. Now, in this vegan Bible, uh, Abraham travels to Moriah in order to befriend a gentle lamb. That's why he goes there, showing his reverence and respect for God's creation. Instead of what we get in the story, where he slaughters a ram in order to demonstrate his faith in God. Now, you might be thinking, man, you know, just Abraham frolicking with a lamb that's so sweet and tender, uh, but unfortunately, it undercuts some of the important theological messages in the scriptures. When we try to reimagine God in a portrait of our own image, of our own choosing, we not only sin against God because it's idolatry, but I would argue it hinders our depth of our own faith. When we try to sugarcoat the scriptures, they lose some of their, their oomph of what God reveals in that whole narrative. So if you haven't already done so, let's open up to Genesis 22. Let's see what really happened some 4,000 years ago and see how these events continue to pay dividends to our own spiritual development today. So I'm going to just kind of take it in chunks. So we'll start with the first four, first four verses, Genesis 22, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, the tenor of this story, just in the opening verses, is the polar opposite of what we saw last week. Last week, we experienced the birth of Isaac, a momentous occasion marked with the laughter of joy. Now, fast forward an unspecified number of years, and God has called Abraham to do the unthinkable. And the text begins by telling us that God makes this request of Abraham in order to test him. Now, when I think about the word test, the image that comes to mind is an exam. I think of sitting in a classroom having to give the correct answer in order to get the best grade that I can. Now, what we see in scriptures is that God sometimes utilizes the test or tests to reveal the genuine nature of people's commitments. Perhaps in our modern language, this idea of what we call a litmus test. It's meant to help us understand where do we align. For example, this same word of test is used in Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. This is where God is providing manna to the wandering Hebrews in the wilderness. And he he tells them the instructions that on the sixth day, right, every morning it's going to be there, the sixth day they are to gather double, a double portion, because that is to hold them over for the seventh day, the Sabbath. And on the seventh day, they should not go out to look for it. God's testing them to see, it says, are they going to walk in his his law, his ways? Are they going to be obedient to him? It's not about uh, answering the questions correctly, but it's a call to obedience. Now, does this mean that God doesn't know what we're going to do in advance? Now, if you just take the plain reading of the text here and a little bit later that we'll look at it, it seems to indicate that God wants to know how well his followers are going to obey. But if we take the Bible in its entire context, it showcases a God who is omniscient, who is all-knowing. And so it's my, it's my opinion that these tests that we see in Scripture, God's not doing it for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the one who is being tested. We, we chatted about this briefly on Tuesday at our small group. We were looking at Mark 9 and In Mark 9, you have these disciples, and they're gathering together, and they're arguing, who's the greatest? And then, you know, as they got to a point, Jesus said, hey, what what were you guys, what were you guys chatting about? And they, you know, they get a little sheepish, and they don't answer, and that's when he says, you know, that if you want to be greatest in the kingdom, like, he knows what they were talking about. If if you want to be greatest, you've got to be the least, the servant of all, right? He was, he asked the question to draw the disciples out. He wanted to reveal to them, he already knew, but he wanted to reveal to them the arrogance of their own hearts. So God here, I believe, is testing Abraham not for God's benefit, but for Abraham's. And the object of that text is what we see next, that God has called, that God has called Abraham to offer, to sacrifice, to kill Isaac. And notice that label that God defines next to Isaac, the son whom you love. Man, this command seems contrary to everything that God has revealed to Abraham up to this point. I mean, we just discussed this last week that not only 
was Isaac this child of promise that God had, had been, you know, restating and restating to Abraham, but that this had been over a period of 25 years that Abraham had been waiting for this son. And, and, and now God's saying, all right, kill him. I mean, I think it's easy for us to, to read our own culture over this, where this is, I mean, this is unthinkable. In fact, we can point to several horrific stories where mothers and fathers state that they believe God has told them to kill their ch- children. And we rightly label these individuals as murderers and acknowledge that oftentimes there are some definitive mental health issues going on surrounding them. Why should we think differently about Abraham's situation? Why would Abraham have even considered complying with this command? I I, I think, you know, not trying to sugarcoat it, not trying to justify it, but I do think it's important to understand this passage in the context in which it was written, which it happened. So in, in Abraham's day, child sacrifice was a real thing. We have examples in the Old Testament where this was a, the ritualistic practice of some of the nations surrounding the Hebrew people. Again, just to you know, name drop that Bible reading plan, if you've been reading with us, this past week we just read in Second Chronicles about Manasseh, who was probably Judah's most appalling king. Second Chronicles 33 verse 6 describes him in this way, and he, Manasseh, burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necronancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. The language is clear that he is offering, he is burning his children as an offering to pagan gods and or goddesses. So when God said this to Abraham, this wasn't way out in left field. In some sense, this was par for the course in the ancient world. This is speculation, but perhaps Abraham in that moment was thinking, like, I thought this one was different than all those other gods. Like, maybe Yahweh's just more of the same. Right, the the command is appalling to us, and it's appalling in general. And this is why, if we read the rest of Scriptures, in particular the law, God forbids any of these types of rituals. But to understand this, I think it's important to put us in the shoes of Abraham, where this was somewhat commonplace. So Abraham sets off for Moriah. This is the same mount, mountain area that surrounds Jerusalem. It's the same place, actually, the, the similar location of where King Solomon built that temple in Jerusalem. And then in verse 4, we, it says that on the third day, Abraham saw the location. Again, significance in scriptures attached to the third day. We see this pointing forward even to the third day after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's keep going in the story. Genesis 22, 5 through 8. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. 
So Abraham and Isaac go off to prepare for the sacrifice. And I couldn't imagine how Isaac is feeling at this moment. Uh, We don't know how old he is, uh, but scholars say that he was anywhere between his late teens to early 20s. Um, Scripture doesn't make it clear. We know he was younger than 37, because that's how old he was when his his mom, Sarah, died, and um, this event occurs before. But, you know, Isaac's, he's no, he's no dummy. He's not naive. He sees all these supplies for the offering to the Lord, and he's kind of taking mental inventory of them. And there's one glaring omission. What's this animal that's going to be offered? Abraham responds that God will provide the lamb. Right? That, that word, will provide, it's that Hebrew word, yireh, uh, what we more commonly pronounce, gyra. You know that song, Maverick City Music, we sing it here sometimes. Uh, this isn't where it says Jehovah Jireh. That actually comes later in the passage because the, it's attached to, to God. God will provide, which would be El, Elohim. But Abraham's saying God is going to provide this. Now, is he just blowing smoke to Isaac in order to placate him? I don't think so. Notice what he says in verse 5 to his servants who's accompanying them. He says to them, wait here. Isaac and I are going to go worship God, and we will come back to you. Right? The tense of that return trip is very important. It is not singular in the Hebrew. It is plural. As Abraham approaches the mountain with his son, he is convinced that somehow, some way, they are both going to return unharmed. Now, the author of Hebrews helps to fill in some of the gaps for us in the story. So, Hebrews chapter 11, that's what we just read yesterday in the Bible reading plan. Not intentional, but it's all fitting together. Sometimes it's called the Hall of Faith. It's a recounting of many of the Old Testament saints and their faith in God. The, way, the, the lifestyles where they displayed this trust, this faith. Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 through 19 say this about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Abraham knew that God had promised a son to start his own tribe, to start his own people. Right? Through several encounters with God that we have tracked over the last five weeks, that promise has been confirmed and confirmed and confirmed again and specifically named to be through Isaac. Now, all of a sudden, God is asking Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. It seems contradictory. But Abraham is trusting in the promises of God, knowing that even if his son's life was taken, that God in his faithfulness and power was able to raise him from the dead. I believe that's the confidence that Abraham had in God in that moment. I am sure, I would imagine that he struggled mightily with this trial. But his hope in God's goodness and faithfulness gave him courage knowing that Isaac and he would return to those servants safely when they had finished. I think that's a really important, one of the key 
interpretive ways to understand this passage. Let's see how the episode ends. Genesis 22, 9 through 14. When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, right? That's that title, Jehovah Jireh. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So the angel of the Lord intercedes. This repetition of Abraham's name might have been an emphasis on the, the urgency of the situation. God is staying his hand. In verse 12, I want to look at it, depicts God saying, now I know that you fear God, and I don't know, I, I have trouble getting on board with that understanding in English. I do not believe that God did not have that knowledge before this encounter. I don't know if that, there are a lot of negatives in that. I believe that God, before this encounter ever happened, knew precisely how Abraham would respond, because the bulk, all of Scripture, provides a God who is all-knowing. But as I mentioned before, this might be an example of what God already knew about Abraham, Abraham now knows about himself. Now, to help us kind of connect some of the dots with ourselves, I want to read James chapter 2. This is verses 21 and 22. This is, this is a very significant act, and so you see a number of times, specifically in the New Testament, that it is highlighted. James says this, starting at verse 21. Was not Abraham... Our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Now, we saw this a few weeks ago, that Abraham believed, and in that belief, God credited it to him as righteousness. But James says that here, in this moment, this passive faith, this passive trust of Abraham has now become active. This is the nature of faith. And it kind of goes with this theme of testing that we started the passage with. Let me give you an example. My brother is a professor of aerospace engineering at the University of Illinois. Uh, he's He's a smart guy. He could tell you precisely, I could not, but he could tell you why an airplane can fly. He's got all the equations to back up the principle that an object, you know, I mean, think of a, a Boeing 747, one of these monstrosities, I don't know how much they weigh, but something that heavy and that large can fly because of lift and gravity and thrust and drag. I'm not sure all equal parts, but there's all those aerospace equations. I'm going to cough with the mic on. But what if my super smart brother can crunch all of the numbers but refuses to ever get on an airplane because he is scared that it won't fly? 
that it's going to crash. He has intellectual belief in the flight of an airplane. But that belief has never had to pass the test, if you will, of concrete action. You don't have faith in an airplane's ability to fly by knowing all the calculations. But you showcase your faith by purchasing a ticket and flying from Chicago to Pittsburgh. Philip, if you're listening, you should take that flight. Come visit me. James is saying that the signature event in Abraham's life that displayed this concrete and active nature of his faith was this event, that test. So God not only prevents Isaac from being killed in the wake of it, but Abraham looks up and what does he see? He sees a ram caught in a thicket, a gift from God. Now, I know that the pita vegan translation of the Bible is far less gruesome, but Abraham is not just going to frolic with a gentle lamb on Mount Moriah. This lamb that is caught is now the sacrifice on behalf of Isaac, right? A gift from the Lord and a gift to be given back to the Lord. What is significant about this is that it sets up a theme that we go back to time and time again in the scriptures. We, we even see in the foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. In fact, some speculate that this mountain, this, this mountain range, as I said, it was near Jerusalem, is actually the mountain range that, of which we might find Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified. Now, the Mosaic Law, Exodus 13, verses 11 through 13. You can look it up on your own time. I'm not going to read it. But basically, God says that the firstborn animal or child belongs to him, that the firstborn of the flock was to be given to the Lord as a sacrifice. But verse 13, it says that the firstborn child is to be redeemed, meaning that in place of that firstborn child, you are to sacrifice a clean animal to him, that there, there is a sacrifice of the animal in lieu of the firstborn. Right? There's a substitutionary nature to this. One animal is dying on behalf of the human child that gets to live. Now, this sets the stage for our Christian understanding of the atonement with Jesus. The primary understanding of atonement, uh, most common, it's not the only one, but the primary understanding is called the penal substitutionary theory, and it just means that Jesus's death was a substitution for ours. Right, John 1.29, upon seeing Jesus Christ, John the Baptist says, behold, notice this language, behold the Lamb of God that, who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see that language of substitution? Jesus Christ is the Lamb, that animal that was the, in Hebraic thinking, you know, in the Old Testament law, would take away, would substitute by paying the penalty for people's sins, removing the sins from us. You know, John's gospel doesn't actually mention the baptism, but if you read the other gospels after Jesus is baptized by John, what happens? The heavens open up, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of the dove, and what does God the Father say? He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I cannot mistake the similarity in language with what we saw God say here about Isaac. Right? Take your only son, Isaac, whom you love. God has taken the son whom he loves dearly and has put him to death for us. 
Now, before we get to application, I'm not going to read the remainder of the chapter. God is just restating, once again, his promises to, to Abraham from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Uh, there's some foreshadowing, again, I think is meant to foreshadow Jesus, that Abraham's descendant will be a ruler over the Gentiles. And there's a little bit of like a happily ever after uh, kind of feeling to the very end of a very traumatic encounter. So let, let's, let's turn this to like, what does this mean for us? How are we to understand the story of Abraham for ourselves today? And I've got, I've got two things, two primary things I want us to consider. First is, as I've kind of been alluding to, this event foreshadows the arrival and work of Jesus Christ. Right? The substitutionary nature of atonement of Jesus on our behalf. Because the truth is, we all have lived in rebellion against God. We might not always feel that way, because our culture is one that's kind of a, you know, do as you please, follow your, the desires of your heart is kind of the ethic of our day. And so we think, all right, I'm, I'm good, or I compare myself to other people. I can always find someone who I'm better than. But the truth is we've all been selfish. We've all chosen selfish second-rate pleasures over the majesty of a relationship with God. We've all chose to go our way instead of submitting to his rule. We're constantly breaking his commands as to what an integrated and holy life ought to look like. We lie to our neighbor because we want to preserve the identity that we have in their eyes. We embellish our good deeds. We diminish anything that might make us look foolish. You know, we we pirate online streaming platforms, justifying it because, you know, we just... That $15 a month from Netflix is just really inconvenient. I don't really want to pay that. We don't bat an eye for, to spending 30 minutes on Instagram or TikTok, but then struggle to pray for five to 10 minutes a day. We're a nation of consumers. We don't care about the pain that is caused through our spending habits to produce the, the cheap goods that we consume with abandon. We objectify others to satiate our own physical and emotional appetites. I mean, I think if we truly slowed down enough to take an introspective look at our lives, we would see the devastation that we have caused. Right? We've see, we would see the ways that we've snubbed God and we've gone our own way. And that's what the Bible teaches, is that we were the ones that deserved to be on that chopping block, not Jesus. But God, in his immense love, has provided an alternative. Right? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. He's provided a way that we would live because someone else would die, right? suffering the consequences of our actions. Isaiah 53, that great chapter of the suffering servant foreshadowing, again, Jesus, um, and read that if you've never read it before. But for Isaiah 53, 6 tells us this, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We've done what we want to do. And the Lord has laid on him, the servant, who is, we know is Jesus, he's laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Our iniquities, our sins were shouldered by Jesus when he hung there on the cross. He suffered unjustly so that we might receive mercy. And what's more, Jesus rose from the dead, unequivocally breaking the chains of sin, robbing death of its power. So 4,000 years ago, God is demonstrating this exchange. He is shaping the culture of this 
for Abraham and his spiritual descendants, providing a way of reconciliation, not just for Abraham in that moment, but pointing forward to all those who are counted among the spiritual descendants of Abraham. In Christ Jesus, God has truly fulfilled his promise to Abraham that through his lineage, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's the first. Understanding that atonement, understanding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But secondly, there's something for us here as well. We don't just passively sit here and reap the reward. This is going to fly in the face a little bit of, of what we say, because we, we overemphasize, because we want to put aside legalism, but the freeness of salvation. Right? Our salvation is free. We have not and cannot do anything to earn it. I want to be abundantly clear on that. <clears throat> but we are called to live a life of obedience. Remember that passage I referenced earlier from James, right? James is citing the story that Abraham was credited with righteousness through his faith, but his faith was confirmed with his actions. That's the whole James. This is in the same context where James is talking about faith without works is dead. No good. Kaput. Good works do not earn you one iota of your salvation. I want to be very, very clear on that. We're not working. We're not doing good works to get salvation. But good works are the fruit of your salvation. Point two, whichever parable of Jesus you want to talk about, about fruit, being known by the fruit. Right? Our, our deeds, our good works, confirm the work that God has already been doing in our heart. Right? I know many who struggle with what God has asked Abraham to do in our passage. The point is not that God desired the sacrifice of Isaac. I don't think that's actually what God abundantly, what God wanted in that moment. What God desired was the full heart of Abraham. God forced Abraham to come to terms with answering this question, what do I cherish most in this life? Is it God? Or is it something else? And Jesus is, I think he said some equally challenging things. He told us that to truly follow him, that we had to be ready to, to leave behind our family. We had to be ready to leave the security of a job, to give away our nest egg, endure hardship. Not that we had to do those things, but we had to be prepared to do it, to stop mindlessly feeding our desires. We don't obey in order to gain the love of God. We've already got that in buckets in Jesus Christ. But we obey because God has loved us, because God gave himself for us. So in response, we love and obey God because he first loved us. And so this week, as we get to some of these reflection questions, I want us to contemplate this place of obedience. And so I want to start with this. Because I think this, this is the question, ultimately, that this encounter is about for Abraham, and I think for us as well. What do you cherish most in this life, and how would you respond if God asked you to give it up? That's what Hebrews says, that, that Abraham offered up. He didn't kill his son, but he offered him. He was willing to say, God, you are first in my life, and then he received his son back. Sometimes that happens, where we give it up, put it on the altar, and God says, all right, now you can have it back, because I know, you know, your, your priorities are in order. Sometimes not. 
But I think that's, there's something there to, to meditate on this week. What is it that you cherish and how would you respond? Next, I want to talk, think about the atonement, right? Are there other models of atonement that you prefer over this, you know, what I call penal substitutionary theory? There are other ones out there. Ransom theory, um, Christus Victor, there's a number of them. But I think that, you know, especially in recent years, folks have not liked the penal substitutionary theory because it is, uh, um, it's kind of graphic, right? It, it involves like God, you know, the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus, and they say, oh, I can't, I can't live that way. Um, you know, I, I, God, I can't imagine that God was angry and, you know, it, it, some people call it cosmic child abuse, if you will. I, I don't necessarily, I don't hold to that, um, but if there are other, you know, theories of the atonement that you want to hold to, I mean, that, that's fine. There are other options, but I would really encourage you to think through how are they biblically supported. I, I, that's why I continue to hold to this penal substitutionary theory, because I just feel like the, the, the kind of narrative scripture points to this um, from Old Testament through New. So anyway, that's the, the second question. And last is this. Put yourself in Isaac's shoes. You know, what ex- emotions do you think he was experiencing? Or Abraham, for that matter. What emotions was he experiencing? And just kind of a, a question to, you know, um, challenge us a little bit to think, you know, a little, uh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, not contentious, but, um, you know, how do you reconcile this, right? This trauma that is occurring in this, this event with the overarching plan of God. Something to, uh, to think about. I'll post those online like I do each and every week. Um, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll close our service with some singing. Lord, as we encounter stories like this, I think it's important for us to hold fast to your goodness because there's a lot in this that just doesn't feel good. Uh, it feels brutal and traumatic and Uh, We weren't there. None of us walked the earth 4,000 years ago when this happened, but God, we know in the scriptures that you are good and that you are faithful. um, But in the process of that goodness and faithfulness and the love that you show for us, you desire that we would uh, put you as first in our lives. Uh, That was the, the criticism of the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, that they had lost their first love. And so may we be a people, a church, community, a a, a people, individuals who follow you, Lord, that have not forsaken our first love, that we would cling fast to Jesus, cling fast to his gospel, and uh, cling fast to you for our hope, um, not only in the life that is to come, but even in our life here and now. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.